wow, like this really liberated me, you know, to enjoy my retreat center. Like I would go to events and like this kid was like, man, whoever built this place, like this is awesome. And I was like, I built this place. I, this is the first time I'm looking back at my own place and being like, oh, I could enjoy it. Like I'm sitting at the fire pit, not running around on a walkie talkie or, you know, finding out what's going on. So yeah, I guess now I, I try to enjoy the things I'm doing more and do them slowly to avoid fast mistakes too. So the question is this, how do regenerative minded change makers like us who are creating projects designed for environmental wellness, social equity, and security for future generations, accomplish our missions in ways that maintain our ethics without leaving us struggling to survive? Welcome to Regeneration Nation Costa Rica. I'm your host, Jason Thomas, and I've been exploring innovators around Costa Rica to discover what they're doing to contribute to a regenerative nation. Join me on the journey as we explore who's doing what to usher in a new world that prioritizes regenerative agriculture, business models that value multiple forms of capital and a circular economy, communities designed for local resilience, and government initiatives that prioritize the well-being of the people as well as the planet. The episode you're about to hear is with Edward Zadelman. While Edward's story of developing his first land project, Vita, is one that was riddled with challenges and an ending that was very different than what was hoped for upon inception, the interview is speckled with silver linings and an evolution of approaches that's brought Edward to be the respected consultant that he is today. Edward shares how he's taken what he's learned in his years creating space at Burning Man and how he's applied that to his retreats in the tropics. Edward advises us, before investing in expensive or permanent infrastructure, to consider producing some smaller events to develop a more practical perspective for the lands as well as our own limitations. In his adventures in creating low-budget and temporary spaces for events, he's learned quite a bit about glamping options, and he shares with us the good, the bad, and the potentially ugly in that approach as well. We also get into topics like creating sacred space, renting temporary infrastructure, developing strategic partnerships, and the importance of self-care. I'm embarrassed to say that this episode was recorded almost a year ago. At the same time, I am celebrating to say that I've finally gotten it published. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I have. I am here today with Edward Zadelman of Vita and Nucleo, which are a couple of programs in Costa Rica you're about to hear about. And I got a hold of Edward because he has been here for, gosh, longer than I have. He's been here for some 15 years. He's been part of many projects. He's been networking with some of the leaders in the sustainability, permaculture, intentional community, and eco-village circles here in Costa Rica and internationally. Ed has some consulting videos that he provides. He helps people get set up in the country and he has a passion for helping owners of these interesting land-based projects get up and going and his experience in the event industry is one of the things that powers his effectiveness in those efforts. So today I am doing also my very first online interview. I haven't, uh, I'm not making it out to Ed's projects today. We are at the mercy of internet signals in Costa Rica. So crossed fingers that everything is going to go smooth. With that, Ed, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Jason. To start off, Ed, 
I just want to ask you what, um, you know, you, you grew up in New York and now you're in the tropics, you know, at the forefront of a many person movement. And what, what pulled you out here to build Vita and get involved in so, so many big projects? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. It was uh, kind of this feeling to pursue a better way of living that wasn't just in me, it was in my family. And I had grown up in New York, like you said, and uh, graduated college. And uh, in, uh, yeah, in high school and college, I was in events and nightlife, like big parties, not the more conscious events. And it really ran me down. My family also had started to shift to organic food and preventive medicine because their health had been run down as well. So I kind of took this pause after, yeah, during college where I was like, what do I want to do with my life and how can I be of impact and service and where do I want to do that? And for a short stint, I worked with the Burning Man organization, um, the founders, and I got to experience, yeah, really life unplugged, you know, just how much possibility there is to live in community and co-create and thrive in other ways. Um, and then started going on retreats and meeting healers and all these kind of um transformational programs. And that's when I kind of was like, this is, I don't know what in this space, but this is what I want to do. And by chance, Costa Rica popped into my life. A friend was going and my, uh, my father had a friend who bought land here and he said, let's go to Costa Rica. Maybe, um, like he had left his business. I had finished my work in nightlife. He said, let's do something else. And I said, yeah, I would love it to be in wellness and healing and transformation. So we looked all over the world, like, where is the most conducive place to do that, to live well ecologically, um, to create villages, to have retreats, to heal. And Costa Rica kind of popped up. No army, um, you know, education was through the roof. It was close to us from the United States. We didn't have to go halfway around the world. Even though I respect Bali and other places, uh, people are doing this uh, thing. For us, it was Costa Rica. And I always tell people, even though I'm Costa Rica biased, choose your choose the place that resonates with you and you feel of service in. And yeah, so that kind of got me here 15 years ago on a crazy journey to yeah to build an eco village and build a retreat center, a healing center. We didn't really know that word retreat, so it's more to build a, a longevity and wellness center where the food we grew on the property could feed people and we could live in a good way. And that journey didn't go like like in a fairy tale, it was crazy. We could talk a little bit about that. <laughs> and you're referring to Vita, the creation and running of Vita. Yeah, before Vita, it took mm -hmm. us about two years. It was just my father and I, and he left after a while. Like it was pretty much me living here and he would come back and forth and we had to find land for our dream. And we also had to somehow get capital to build the thing that we envisioned. We didn't have enough money to do both. And so that was... That was a long time of like one researching from our side what models we've seen around the world that we liked of wellness centers, of communities, and then creating our own and then finding a place that fits. I mean, we traveled all over Costa Rica and we were not looking in popular beach towns. Like the last thing we needed was a destination, you know. We uh, wanted a place that felt safe, that had good water, food. Um, growing ability and internet and mm -hmm. electricity and the things that, that we needed. Not just like, oh, tourism is booming here. Let's go to this beach town. So maybe that was right. a mistake from like real estate perspective, but we just chose places that felt good that we wanted to be. And then mm -hmm. Vita happened. So you gave us some thought, you checked out the country, 
And once you decided to buy Vita, you you began building and growing and events were a really strong aspect of what you were doing there. You were wanting to have uh, this wellness center. So tell me a little bit about the good, bad and ugly of starting a place like that with uh, and that was your first that was your first project that you started of that caliber. Yeah, definitely the first. Okay. So yeah, tell us a little bit about the about the process. Yeah, it was not what I thought because when we had purchased our land, the market changed. It was like 2007, I think, um, when the actual, like once we actually decided to buy land and everything changed. So I couldn't go and do what a lot of my friends had done, which is raise money and build a project. Or some friends who had sold lots, who had sold pieces of land to get the money to build the roads and infrastructure. I'm glad I didn't necessarily go that route because maybe we would have compromised our values and uh, raised a lot of money that we didn't need or then had to sell expensive land. And also that we didn't just sell like 100 plots of land to foreigners like before knowing what we wanted out of the community. So the process was really grueling in the sense that I would go and like pitch my vision to people, even like individuals. And they're like, wow, this is awesome. Like, we feel you like we want to build an eco village or a healing center, but just not right now. So that was super tough. Like that was, you know, and sometimes I'd walk into like a financial firm and I had like my Tom shoes and my long hair. And I was like, I shouldn't be here. You know, like this is, <laughs> this feels weird. Like I want to start a project that's different than all of this. And so in one part, we were planning, we were meeting with architects and engineers and getting the property ready to have any an eco-village or a retreat or hosting people. We needed to get permits and water and engineering done. And I thought that process was a a little bit blown out. Like we went full in on something, even engineering the property and making the master plan without really getting the knowledge that I did over the years later, which is where things should go. Oh, there can't be a house here. This is the meditation platform, of course. You know, and so having the hindsight of starting to work on a property it would have been taking uh, the, really the time in that early phase when we planned things out to feel the site for a while and listen to the land and see what it needs, even if it needs an eco-village. You know, maybe it just needed a, a place to host people and transformation, maybe both, uh, maybe just an eco-village. So I think, um, you know, we took it slow. It took us a couple of like two, three years to get off the ground, but still I would have taken it slower Maybe not by time, but by process, how we moved. So, yeah, what we ended up realizing, and I kind of used the Burning Man uh, learning, was after all this time and money spent to try to get a project going, in Burning Man, we built a city in a week, a city for 70,000 people with internet, with electricity, like there's an intranet within Burning Man. And I'm like, wow, why is it taking so long to get my project up and running? So we decided to do a pop-up. You know, in hotels or in lodges, they build like big buildings. And we had an old rancho and I knew events. Like I knew how to create an experience. So I said, let's do that. Like forget building a project. Uh, Let's ignite the place. Let's get people here. And so with a friend, we bought 30 glamping tents, a swimming pool for (laughs) that was made here in Costa Rica, a kitchen. And we fixed up our ranch that was this big ranch that could host like 100 people, just a roof. But we put in a kitchen, we built a retreat center. 
We built a fire pit. We built, um, we put in all the permaculture system with Stephen Brooks, which was beautiful. Uh, now, like many years later, I actually see the big fruits and I'm like, wow, permaculture works. It takes a while, people, so be patient. But like eight years later, we have these incredible fruits. And I think I do more fruit tours on the property than any other job now. Um, I'm like the fruit tour guy. But uh, yeah, the, the pop-up saved us because we got to host right away. And that was cool. And my father laughed at me. He's like, what are you doing in Costa Rica with those tents? I'm like, dude, we're doing like what we bought the land for, which is hosting people. And they're crying and they're breaking down and they're growing. And I feel on purpose, even if we don't have our dream realized, I feel like I'm doing the work I'm supposed to be doing, connecting people. And also those people who came started to ignite the project. And I see a lot of friends doing this um, at Holos, Ian Michael just set up a glamping setup. Okay. At Zunia at our friend's property, also glamping setup. Even many fine like retreat centers like Blue Spirit and like top of the line places have glamping. And now it's like a thing, but it helped me mm -hmm. get going on a low budget and show that we can fill the place with people and can comfortably say, now we can build a cabin because we know a person will come here and pay a certain amount and also enjoy the experience. So that's cool because, yeah, the traditional model was like raise a bunch of money, build a retreat center. When that didn't work, we did it the way we could. The way Stephen did at Punta Mona, uh, the way others did, which was just build it little by little. Okay. So let's fill in this illustration here. You bought the land. You had this idea of building some big full-on retreat center. You got started with it. And for whatever reason, you backed off from your original, like, full-on ambition. And you were like, hey, wait a minute. Let's not invest so heavily. Let's just start doing what we came here to do. It's not about the buildings. It's about the experiences, right? So I love that. Yeah, I was just saying we also didn't have the capital. It was a reality, yeah. <laughs> right. No, the capital's a, it's a big, big, definitely big part of it. So I'm intrigued now because uh, I know when we held our first events, you know, we got, we chopped down some Melina roundwoods, put up some you know, post and beam structures and threw some metal roof panels on it and offered like shade structures to tent under. Right. And that was our first thing, but this is a different approach. So I want to go deeper into glamping. Okay. This is a topic that I have renewed my interest in. I've started looking, there's actually a, a glamping expo that they're doing their second year of now. It is big industry. And as I've been looking at projects in the country, I'm finding that yeah, an impressive number of them are like high end places are offering glamping. And it's uh, one of the things that we're interested in investing into here for our uh, upcoming structures. So there's a lot of points we can touch here. But first, why don't you go ahead and so you bought your glamping tents and I'd like to ask where you sourced those from. But then you're also pointing to these other friends that have since years later been getting into glamping. So let's share with the listeners here some of your advice as to what to look for, what to stay away from, some advice for people that want to set up glamping and how to best make some choices. Yeah. So glamping is not an easy thing to do. Our first tents that we bought ended up, we didn't care for them well. So they ended up getting moldy. 
And we bought awesome tents from a company called Stout Tents. We actually grew with them over the years. Now they're like an amazing company in the U.S. Um, and we saw options from China. I'm glad I didn't do that because when I heard what Stout does, they're like a family-run business and they source materials still where a lot of these come from China, but they'll double stitch it. They'll make sure things are done like amazing. And so the quality of the tents you buy matters. During the time at Vita, a hotel group called Selena, we had met at an event and they had started getting into this space of like, they wanted to get into retreats and glamping. We ended up partnering with them for Vita and I was consulting for them um, for a while. I, I don't anymore. And they set up glamping all over the place from Panama to other places. And they found the same thing. If they ordered like a cheap tent from China, they got a cheap tent from China. You know, and uh, if they didn't care for these things, they could be gone in one season, man, like one season of heavy rains and leaf fall. So even when I go visit friends projects, I'm like, you have leaves that are collecting on the top of the tent. That's going to ruin a 10K investment that you have in glamping tents, you know, so you really have to care for them and understand if they're a means to an end or the end, because I've seen properties that are just glamping forever and they're beautiful and they charge good prices in that case i would also build like a superstructure over the tent to protect it from rain and from things even a, a tin roof i've seen a lot of things done um to cover them other cloth and etc other people like myself for me the tents were a way to do events and two events the tents paid for themselves so in a way i wanted to build a larger vision. I knew that tents were temporary and eventually would have cabins and then one day people living there. So the tents were a, a stage. Had I known now a little more, I probably would have taken better care for them because even if you have a retreat center and you built like 15 cabins, to have those tents in the, in the storage unit that you can take them out if you're doing a small festival or bigger event, 200 people, 300 people. Now you have tents to have larger groups, which it's so hard to find a retreat center or property that can host large groups, you know, and so tents have mm -hmm. all, a lot of benefit. Um, I also didn't realize how much storage you have to build. Like when I have consulting clients who are building retreat centers and I have their, uh, their build plans or I have their uh, kind of budgets and I see the thing, I'm like, wow, you have to add a, a whole nother building worth of storage. And I don't mean an expensive storage. I mean like a shed. To store the tents? To store tents, to store mattresses, to store things when they're not all fully up. Because that's one benefit that we had at Vita. When we didn't, we didn't need to have events every day. We're not like a fully operating property. We had two retreats a month that brought in enough income that we were happy and our team could recharge, you know. So with two groups a month, that was our like baseline where the place would run. Everybody could uh, get paid their salaries. And... Um, in the other times, we would uh, keep the tents up and notice that they got really worn down. Um, we didn't have roofs over the just tents. Just from sitting up. Yeah, just from sitting up. They're getting sun. They're getting rain. They're getting leaves. They're getting humidity from the ground, actually, that comes up. So we recommend putting like a ground tarp down uh, for tents or a deck. What the about a platform is, to build them on? Yeah, deck. Yeah, that's great. And if you want to keep the tents for a while, a deck and a roof, then you don't need to take tents down. Otherwise, maybe during the rainy okay. season, you take them down, you clean them. At least twice a year, we clean them no matter what, with a power washer, with, you know, really well. But the question is, and the main mm -hmm. question is, when you look at a budget 
and you see what it costs to build a deck with a little roof and you put a tent in there, if you add all those costs up, you're almost at the cost of a small cabin, which in a way is more sustainable because it lasts right. longer, you know? So yeah, that's, right. I think, essentially the question too that we have to ask ourselves is at what point is this tent investment already a cabin investment? <laughs> so, yeah. And even so though, at the cost of a cabin investment, I hear what you're saying that a cabin could technically last longer, but the glamping just has this attraction quality to it anyhow. So I'm curious, let's say, let's go into that and maybe yeah. you know or don't know or would have to guess, but if we had a deck and a roof with a glamping tent inside of it instead of building walls and it just stayed yeah. up there, what kind of longevity does like a company like Stout suggest that you'd get out of their tent under those protected conditions? Yeah, so they also have like a, a model of tent. There's their highest model with a sunbrella material, like the boat material, um, the boat cloth material that lasts a while. Yeah, those can last 10 years. Uh, if covered, they could definitely last 10 years. A regular glamping tent's lifespan will be anywhere from two to five years. If you cover them, you could get seven to eight years, 10 years out of a glamping tent because they're really, they're not getting worn out. And to give you an idea of the numbers, you know, let's say a tent can cost anywhere from 800 to $1,500 for a classic bell tent. Um, the price range based on the material choice and the quantity of tents someone's ordering. And let's say you're going to put, I don't know, some maybe a mattress and a, a, some a simple furnishings, but maybe another... 800 to a thousand dollars inside the tent electricity etc basic but just a power outlet you know then you know you're mm -hmm. getting at something that's already around two grand okay to have like a fully finished tent and landed in a country and then you know add a deck add some roof so you could probably create a roof glamping structure for four to five grand but i've seen people do it for seven eight grand also at zunia in malpais they bought tents now from South Africa that are like houses. I mean, they're enormous. And they were quite expensive tents. And mm -hmm. We're talking about upwards of $10,000. But they're built for a different longevity. Uh, it's a whole different thing then. It looks like a house. Like it has a floor. It has everything. So I've seen really cool stuff mm -hmm. done. And in that case, it's also, like you said, it's part of an experience. Like you're in the jungle. You're in a tent. It's cool. You're not in some ac hotel room or Airbnb. So I like mm -hmm. glamping even for the charm of it. Um, yeah. So, and these, in, these glamping tents are, are essentially individual units for like a person or a couple. Yeah. And so if you had, you know, so we're looking at really what we're, who we're talking to, who's listening to this right now are people who want to get their projects off the go and they want to get going. They want to, you know, really, um, get off to a good start. So, you're saying that one way for people that want to start providing experiences, would you recommend jumping into some glamping tents to host people right away? 100%. And I think there's a lot of benefits that are outside of just the things on the surface. One, you start to test your operation. You start to have people there. You start to understand what spaces, how you use the spaces. It really brings a project to life. And it also brings people there that are like, wow, this is a magic place. Like, we want to help this place grow. It's really hard for me to explain. Like, you know, I see people doing marketing for projects and people doing sales. 
But like I, I, for me, it was hosting an event and inviting people. And then they're like, this place is cool. Like, how do we get more involved with your place? So Glamping provided that in, in such a short time frame. You know, I mean, you have them up and you could host mm-hmm. an event. And we, I think we had like a month. When we ordered our tents, we had an event, a 100-person event called Echo happening, um, a social impact event, our first event. And we ordered the glamping tents like two months before the event. And we were building an event and a retreat center in one. And so that's really cool, by the way. I think that's wow. important to mention. Like when you do events and from the culture of events, you build an event, you build stages, you build stuff, shade areas. So having events built our property, built Vita. All of a sudden now there's a space that's going to stay for 10 more events. And I encourage people like if you want to, they're like, oh, we're going to rent this and this. And I'm like, hey, if you want to help our place, spend the same money, but don't rent that. Let's build that shade structure you know, and be more mm-hmm. sustainable. So how so many tents was, did you buy on that first event? 30 tents. And we slept three people a tent. And we had, um, how do you call them? Pallets, wooden pallets and single mattresses on top of them. And we had on each okay. side of the tent a person. It is important, by the way, to note that it's better to have two single beds in a tent that you could put together for a couple, but take apart if you have a retreat that's all individuals that don't know each other, you need that ability. Mm, good tip. Yeah, each event, we're like, we have three couples. So these three tents are joint beds, and then the rest are singles. So we'll keep them separate. So yeah, that's also was like really important to note. Yeah, um, that flexibility is great. Even for lodging too, if people are building cabins, I'm like, why not already build that flexibility into it? Yeah. That's a great approach. So, okay, so let's say somebody's like, okay, I'm going to start my project with ordering a bunch of tents. Let's, uh, you mentioned Stout. Do you have any other recommendations for companies to source tents from? Yes, yeah, Stout's really been my favorite because I've sourced all over from them. And then they recommend other companies when they can't service an area. There's Lotus Bell Tents out of, I think they're out of the UK, that are those very pretty bell tents we see that are kind of these bubbles with these really cool, like, stretched tentacles. So those are cool yep. Lotus Bell. Um, but I, I haven't looked in a while, so I would check what's on the market again now. But yeah, Stout's, I think, the okay. number one company in the U.S. And I, they're high integrity, so I like the, the match of those too. Okay, so paint more of a picture. You've got these these simple tents. You've got some pallets to raise the beds up. you got mattresses down. And what other base furnishing would you recommend someone plan on yeah. getting for these? In the, and I'm assuming these tents you put just on, you just had like a, a tarp or something on the ground. You didn't build platforms for these? We didn't at first because for 30 tents, we did the math. I mean, it would just cost an arm and a leg. We didn't have, you know, we built a couple with platforms eventually, but uh, we did them on nice gravel. I recommend not putting them right on the ground because the moisture from the ground is immense. Like I didn't understand what that meant. And even no matter what you put them on, having a ground tarp, like it's a must. The one thing I learned is that the mold will come from the ground. So you need a anything, even like a, a polyurethane tarp below. And ideally, you could even with a broom brush the top. If it's not under any trees, it's fine. But if it's under trees, brush the top down. And then you're okay with the basic setup. You don't need like a fancy thing. Um, and we put in the pallets for beds. We bought these really like at that point, cheap thin mattresses that are all over Costa Rica and discount stores. Um, we put on linens. 
And then we started making them cute. Like we cut wood stumps and we put little uh, flower thingies and where we would put a little card. We put in an outlet for electricity, which was like a nightmare how we ran it. But we did because people needed that. Um, some people don't. Yeah, it was nice. Now it's like all the tents have Wi-Fi. That's like when we got our upgrade like three years later. But back then it was like you had an outlet. You had a thing to hang. It's important because people's dirty clothes and bathing suits, they always hang them on the tent strings, which kind of, I don't know, creates mm. this like weird vibe. So just putting like a small like home-built ladder or some kind of place where people can hang their clothes and have like a just a cheap woven basket to put dirty clothes in. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, what did we add later? We added like this little box where you could put your stuff in, a little table with water. But staying at different glampings, like uh, staying at the glamping at Zunia and staying at the glamping at Rise at Kinkara, at Kinkara at Rise rather, I saw people go all out and do way nice, like really nice things, like um, even really cool units that are kind of like you could hang a few things of clothing and have a few drawers, but they were very light units, like made of metal. So, yeah, just cubbies and places to put your stuff and a fan. A fan is a must. We're in the tropics. We have hot mm. days. You don't need AC. That's true. But you need a fan. Yeah. The more waterproof a tent is, the more humidity builds in. So you need the fan. <laughs> uh-huh. Right. All right. Cool. So uh, we're in the mode of helping people get a good start in providing experiences. This is kind of your, your specialty is providing events and experiences. So you've got, we've got the recommendation to consider glamping. We've got some basic furnishings and what else should a new landowner or project organizer be thinking of when putting on their first events? Yeah. One is, um, whether it's temporary or whether it's something that will stay is to start to build the sacred space, the yoga deck, the ecstatic dance, the ceremony space, Maloka. There's so many names for it now, so I just rattled off a bunch. But yeah, you need to have your central <laughs> gathering space. You have a place for people to sleep. You need a place for people to eat that's covered. Uh, we could get into that in a, in a bit. But also, the number one is, for me, was to create that space, the magic space. You know, at Holos, they mm. built the Maloka first, these beautiful curved Malokas at other projects. Um, at Rise, they built, like, their base camp and also their fire pit. Um, they basically built a structure. Most projects I see start with some kind of structure where, uh, call it a clubhouse, a base camp, whatever. It's the place where you have the kitchen and a roof and everyone can meet. And the sacred space, either connected to it or separate. That's up to you. With those three things, you have a place to sleep people, a place to feed people and gather them, and a place to put on your transformational experience. It could be a grass field. It's fine. It doesn't have to be a massive structure. But um, that space has to be consciously designed to provide transformation. It has to leave people in awe or have a certain sense of um, containment if you're in a forest or woods. It doesn't necessarily have to be some like cliff overlooking the ocean, just a space to create warmth because, you know, the number one thing that people left us as a, as a comment was not that like we had the nicest retreat center or something like that, but they felt like they were at home and the staff and the place and everyone who worked there, they mm -hmm. felt like we were a family, not like they're going to stay at some place that just took their American Express and that's really hard to explain to someone 
later when I was asked to do like a bigger project to build a lot of retreat centers, it's hard to explain even to like a company how to create that warmth. I later ended up learning how, but it's really like, I don't know, it's not such a tangible thing. You can build a beautiful, I've seen the most beautiful retreat centers that lack soul and lack that warmth. And so maybe we lack budget to build certain things, but we had that. Um, and how the space is designed to amplify that and contain that, it's magic. Like it's architecture, building, land stewardship, you know, certain tree that can hold an energy of a group. So around that tree, you make a space. That's what I mean, I think, in taking time. Also, we spoke earlier about like taking time early on to really feel your land and feel where all these spaces go and master plan. And the cool thing about events is you can test out a space for one event here and next event, the sacred space is over there before anything is like hmm. built, you know, and that's what I love about. I'm so grateful right. for uh, for Marion and Larry at Burning Man and other people on my event trajectory, because I never thought you could prototype things like this, like building communities and retreats or properties. And you can and you can do it with experiences and events very easily and learn along the way. There's one other factor that I think is critical and when we started doing all this hosting, it's hard to build a project and to host events. And I see this happening all the time because people start hosting and they're stressed because they don't have time to build the project. And also people who are just building, who are never hosting, are never really igniting their project. So it's this really happy balance of building this thing that we just spoke about and then taking it slow. Do one retreat, do one event, test your team See if you're missing somebody or maybe you have somebody on your staff that like you really shouldn't be able to afford for that now. It's too much. So, yeah, I think take it slow and prototype. Get an MVP going with the glamping or whatever you want to do and just launch. That's, I guess, the biggest lesson that I could have seen now is just start it, you know, with the smallest first step, mm -hmm. which is why glamping for me was that step. Yeah. I want to back up and talk about the uh, the sacred space, communal space, event space that you're describing. And, you know, we've all seen gorgeous yoga shalas and all of this stuff with the bamboo and the nice everything. And, uh, you know, for us, that's something that after all these years, we're finally coming around to planning. It was it was not one of the things that we focused. I, we, we, I built a big deck here off the house, which mm -hmm. this was the focal center. We were feeding people up here and it was the main thing. And as we built the, the communal center down below, we never really had like a really good yoga space and movement space. It was all, everything was convertible, you know, which worked. But definitely having that nice space is something that we're moving into. But you were talking about, and I know I, I saw it on uh, Vita's website, Puerto La Vida, that it seems like one of the main gathering places is under a giant tree. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And the tree in the pictures is decorated with like lights all up in the tree. It's got wide boughs and there's lighting up in there, which just gives it an otherworldly enchanting element. Yeah. What other recommendations, what other design ideas have you seen work in temporary gathering spaces? Like if somebody doesn't really have the money or really know the design yet to build the big yoga shala, what are some things you've seen work to hold that space well? 
Yeah, um, so we actually uh, found a few different spaces for different things. Okay, so one is we built a, a fire pit. So from our main house, essentially we also had like a main ranch where everyone met, there was a fire pit. So that was really cool because you know we've had up to 100 people around that and it's the most powerful tool of our transformational events. It's magic. It creates warmth. Um, so the fire pit was an easy one. The tree, it was like our energetic center of that land. It was the anchor, it still is. And uh, you could see on Experience Vita's website, we have like this big lit up photo with a hundred people under this tree taken by Giancarlo Pucci. He took that photo who did Magic Trees of Costa Rica, which was awesome, he's rad. And yeah, that was an event production that was putting up string lights. And the tree is always set up with some benches and we take out some mats and we put up some candles. And that's where we do opening and opening ceremony and closing. So anytime we have a group, we have to open and close the event. We do it at the magic tree. Yoga actually happened on our main deck by our house. And we don't do that much. We always have yoga in the events, but it's not, we don't do that many yoga retreats. So we have this main deck or main platform with a mandala that people would do yoga on. And also we had a big grass field that we activated by renting tents from Cloud 7 tents. They are out in uh, Santa Teresa, but they deliver all over the country. So when we needed to do a big event, we had like a festival. It was 100 people. It was our biggest event, Echo. We rented these big stretch tents um, and had uh, rented 90 bamboo seats and a stage that we didn't have to build. We didn't have the budget. So we rented it. The event economics paid for it. We broke it down. And again, each breakdown, I'm like, no, don't take that. And actually, my first... Uh, the first event, I asked to keep all the string lights. I said, man, like, we can't set these up as nice as you did. Can we just buy these from you? So we ended up over time building the things we would rent for events. Of course, there are things we always still wanted to rent. But um, over time, the things that produced an event, we needed to have. So we had a storage room with candles. We had, uh, you know, pads and notebooks and things that people might need. We had... Um, all sorts of decor items, you know, from extra pillows and blankets. Uh, so this way we could make flexible space beautiful. The most difficult part was always shade. So we ended up buying shade sales once online from the U.S., these big triangles. But then I found them here in Costa Rica from more sustainable sources. Um, you can even get recycled billboards here or fabrics in Costa Rica. So however you go about making shade, even from palm thatch, it doesn't matter, but shade is critical, especially when you have a big open field like we did uh, of a property. And people are camping. Every year and, we have mm -hmm. Did you shade yeah, your camping camp areas or just the gathering areas? We actually made a separate, like we have a camping site for festivals or events that's lower on our property that's under all of these trees that's like magically shaded. But um, we've had like also shading disasters like where we've had big groups and like they bought like this like black tarp from uh, from like the Ferreteria. The and so we've also seen like shading go wrong where it just looks like a big military camp or something <laughs> so shading is right. important yeah, but, no, i've yeah. helped put those yeah. up for events yeah okay so just kind of uh i love the picture we're painting we're talking about just kind of people got their land they want to start doing whatever their magic is and inviting people into these events and we're just like hey let's you know consider renting renting some tents consider you know 
lightly decorating outdoor spaces to hold the space. And I definitely love your advice to just go for it, just launch. And it's a, you know, it's a, there's a fine line there. I mean, definitely I love the adage that perfect or imperfect action is better than perfect inaction. Right. And, uh, you know, with that ambitious enthusiasm comes stumbling. I stumbled like crazy getting this podcast off the ground. You know, I was just, I just went, I pushed, I made it happen before it existed. And then I pushed it to go out before I was really ready. And I've been pushing promotions and, and communications while I'm just, just catching up to it. I mean, even today I was researching software for this online interview right before the interview. Right. And our place too was built around, okay, we just said we're going to have an event people signed up, how are we going to host 20 people? Yeah. <laughs> and we also created our space with much of that same impetus of, you know, yeah. put it out there, make it happen, catch up, pull it off. If you rocked 80% of what you plan to do, you did a hundred percent because you can't expect more than 80%, you know, unless you're years into it. So I love this approach. It works for a lot of places. And then there's the stumbling part. And I would love to hear some of your follow-up advice to, oh, just launch it. Just go for it. But what? But look out for don't do what I did. Give us some some advice for these newbies that are like, he said go for it. So we're going to go for it. But I don't know what I don't know. So lay it on us. What do we need to know? Yeah, so this is going to be kind of paradoxical in, in a few ways. But I also think go for it, start, but then take the rest super slow. I mean, I was expecting to build this product. Like I was too hard on myself with my expectations of how quickly we would build it. And it ended up I had a marriage that fell apart because of it. My actual business and my relationship with my partner, my father at the time, fell apart. Like the whole project actually at one point had a full on collapse and I, my life went into the dark night of the soul. I came to build a dream and later, like looking back, parts of it worked, but um, I rushed so much of it, like trying to get the eco village off the ground and that didn't work. Like maybe it'll work in the future, maybe never, maybe not there, but that's not what that land called for. It was what my grand vision was to build this healing center and eco village, mm-hmm. but I didn't listen. And I didn't really listen to myself and I got caught up in a lot of vision and I didn't take the time that I needed to really study the land, what was called for there. So I really advise people to take as much time as you can before you're a steward of a property, before making an impact. Like, man, if we actually had gotten funding or had built what we wanted, I would be not very happy with what I've learned today about sustainability and community and different things. Because we would have had um, like some massive retreat center and some community with like huge houses, eco houses, but people that might not know each other. And, you know, we'll get into the eco village thing later about the fabric of the community. But yeah, to slow down because we kept going and growing and we needed money to pay the bills and we started to sell land. And eventually the real estate part of the business, the eco village failed. And I... I didn't know what that meant, how to tell investors like, hey, this didn't work. Like if your Google stock goes down or something goes down, it's okay. But if it's an eco-village investment and money didn't go as planned, it's all of a sudden some big 
<laughs> you know? And that was hard for me. Also, I see this a lot where people start a retreat center as a couple. And it works great, and I've seen it work great, but it doesn't always. It's so much friction with a team, with building a place, with hosting events. That's why I say don't do them so often in the beginning, especially if you have a couple, if you're, if you're in a partnership. Man, that's, there's so many things that have to be done, including little trips off the property every week or every month, getting out of your own bubble and project. But um, I saw the, everything that could go wrong went wrong. The project went under financially. Investors Bring us were some. Pissed. Give us some examples. Yeah. Okay. So essentially, the retreats weren't making enough to sustain a bigger project. Okay. So the retreat center was breaking even, and we're working ourselves into the ground. My ex-wife now, but my wife back then was like, this is not like the eco-living dream I imagined where like, I mean, we're working our asses off and tired and it's like people are transforming, but we don't feel good, which is really important. Like you have to enjoy this process, not just be in service to others, which is beautiful. But if you're not in service to yourself and you're run down, you're not going to be a light unto others or, you know, so that was really tough. And then basically realizing that I didn't want to do the business side of the real estate in the eco village and saying no essentially to my business partner at the time, to my father, saying, look, this thing is not working the way we had structured it. I don't even know if I want to build an eco-village and how it's going to look. But this thing that we started, the way that people did them back in the day, selling lots, it's not working. And I had to walk away and say, this is done. Like, this is closed. Like, this failed, not failed, because that's a ter- like a very terminal word, but like, it's not working and we have to shut it down, shut this project down, even at a loss, to stay in integrity to see what, what's next for the land, for us. So we took on too much. We wanted to do the eco-village and the retreat center, where that land that Vida's on has always been a land of events, actually. It used to have, like, weddings there. So what that land was good for was transformation and events. It was me trying to put a square peg in a, in a round hole, saying an eco-village also belongs there. Sure, my, you know, Stephen Brooks Eco Village, Eco Via, was 40 minutes away. So I was like, wow, we're close. It's okay. But the energy wasn't there. And that's hard to explain on a business plan or something. But if the energy is not there, it's not going to move. Like I've seen projects um, in certain areas of Tinamaste and others that no matter who the owner is, no matter how much money they have or don't have, the projects are not moving for that purpose. You know, and they're moving for a certain other purpose, which could be permaculture, could be events. So, again, taking the time to feel without ego, not what your vision is to impose on the land, but what is the land asking you to steward and serve it for? Maybe it's all of those things, a village and a retreat and a farm. Maybe not. So I kind of rushed into it. I saw the ugly side of what happened. I went on a little walkabout for a while, uh, for like seven months to figure out what I wanted to do and what's the next stage for Vida. And I realized that I don't want to operate my own property. I want to host events and bring people. That's what I do. Like we had so many healers, so many transformational events. And so I brought on a company whose job it was to operate and they made their money from the operation and I had my freedom again. I could travel. I didn't have to go to all the events. Mm -hmm. I was single again at that point, but I was like, wow, like this really liberated me, you know, to enjoy my retreat center. 
Like I would go to events and like this kid was like, man, whoever built this place, like this is awesome. And I was like, I built this place. I, this is the first time I'm looking back at my own place and being like, oh, I could enjoy it. Like I'm sitting at the fire pit, not running around on a walkie talkie or, you know, finding out what's going on. So yeah, I guess now I, I try to enjoy the things I'm doing more and do them slowly to avoid fast mistakes too. Okay. And Salinas is uh, then leasing the property right now to produce the, the events that they're hosting? Yeah, I'd, I'd originally worked as a consultant there to help their hotel brand incorporate things like wellness and sustainability. And they really wanted to get into retreats and events. And so they partnered uh, with me on Vida to essentially keep the place going and improve it. Um, and use it as a prototype to do more. So they ended up leasing the property that Vida sits on, uh, the family property. And it also helped put out a lot of financial fires because we had to pay payments. You know, when you said in the beginning, uh, buying land, we did it in a way that I was too young to understand. But we bought the land with a deposit and then made payments every month which was cool. We couldn't buy the land all at once. Ouch. But there was a point where all those payments added up and that made us compromise integrity. You know, to say, wow, how are we going to pay the bills? I never want to be in that position again where I have to make a choice to pay the bill at the end of the month for the land. So when Selena partnered, it was really awesome. I mean, they, they started paying the bills on the land. I was no longer like the owner. I had a salary which actually felt better. I was like, this is amazing. Like I actually get a monthly salary. I make uh, extra money on each event that I produce. So it was weird. It like technically was like a demotion from like owner to something else. But for me, it was a promotion of my life where like I'm now can work on my space, not in my space and work with this company, which was cool. And we ended up um, building kind of a larger project out of it that uh, during the whole pandemic, they stopped it. But uh, with Vida, they still continue to run it. I still promote events there. I go there and they operate it well. And we had to change their entire operating structure as a hotel company because a retreat is not operated like a hotel. We have times where open and closed. There are times we have zero staff there and that's amazing. You know, you pay a little bit the bills, mm -hmm. but a hotel, you constantly have a staff. In a retreat center, the beauty is if we had two events, we were open for two weeks and the housekeepers were glad to have work and the chef came in and she cooked. But when we didn't, it was just our property caretaker. So wow. do you know many other examples of locations in Costa Rica or else, specifically maybe in Costa Rica, but you can say elsewhere, where landowners have found other production companies or larger outfits to rent the space they've created to kind of the similar relationship you have with Selena's? Have you seen other models working like that? Yeah. Yeah. But most often when it's those places end up getting purchased by that other company or they partner together, like somebody has built a place. And then even if it's not a big company, it might just be an investor who wanted to build a retreat center. That's why I tell people like, look at what exists before you go build something new, you know? So Selena was smart. They saw how much work we put into an existing retreat center and they helped us get it going further. In most cases, if you want to build a retreat center, maybe you could partner with somebody who has land or who's been struggling to get the next step going. But yeah, a lot of people get hotel operators, but that's not really the, the group of people we're talking about or the retreat center audience, you know? Okay. So we've got uh, 
We've got a little bit of a uh, an illustration of getting the thing started. I like the idea. I, I really like the idea of looking for partners that want to come in and, you know, maybe not necessarily own the place, but use it. That's something I don't know if you have any recommendations or anything for landowners to be able to build those kinds of partnerships. But that also with answering that, maybe you can give some advice that you have found over the years for successfully promoting and filling the retreats that one puts on. Because that's something where a lot of places fall short. They put together this yeah. amazing event, so excited, so ready, three people show up. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're calling their friends being like, I don't know, like, we're still going to do it. You want to just come for free? I don't know. Yeah. Um, so how do we save ourselves that discomfort? Yeah, so that was actually my prime work at Selena too, was to figure out how to fill the retreats successfully and really nail it. Because there was a point where I was tired of what you said, which was like some events going good, some events having three people. So I really wanted to figure out marketing for retreat centers and properties. And I had put, um, I, I'd used a software called Retreat Guru, which I love where all our, of our events are on their platform. And it's also how people make bookings for our retreats, 40 bucks a month, integrated in my website. Even if I did my own event, I would put it on there and people buy the ticket. And so that was great. But um, marketing was interesting. So a guy who I really respect, Stefan uh, Rechschafen from Blue Spirit, he asked me a question and he also gave me a piece of advice, which was decide from the beginning whether you're a space that wants to host other people's events and retreats, which they're responsible to fill, okay, or you want to produce your own events. Later, I found there's a healthy mix. Like we hosted other people's groups that I would meet at festivals and gatherings. And so I would meet a person who had a group and said, oh, I want to put this event on. And they would bring 30 to 40 people to our place. And so that was awesome. And then once a month, once every six months, we would see what could we produce ourselves as an event. So we ended up only doing a once a year event that we did because it was a lot of marketing and Facebook ads and workshops and digital marketing for events is really hard. It's really expensive. It works a little bit, but it's hard just to fill an event from digital marketing and social media. Um, so then I ended up working with a lot of the healers and teachers who came to our place. It was many years of like where I felt my service was more to them because they're the ones who are impacting lives. And if they can fill an event, also my retreat centers and others would be healthier. So I started working with my clients. How do we fill your event better? How do we promote your event to our network? So you have a fuller event, you know, how do we cross promote events between different groups that we've had that are similar? That relationship, most people don't do in a retreat center. Like we really worked with our clients a lot. We coached them a little bit. We're like, hey, like you need to have these speakers or you need to have a, your schedule set or you need to start promoting on a certain time. We ended up forming a relationship with the people who hosted retreats at our places to help them succeed more in filling them. And we appealed to people who were getting going mm -hmm. in retreats, like early yoga teachers or breathwork teachers or whatever the group was, we didn't want the most famous yoga teacher. We're not the place for that. But we were a perfect place for people who were getting going at leading their first retreats. I led a course called Retreat Lab, where I taught people how to lead retreats. And that course ended up attracting a lot of retreat leaders 
that then I was like, hey, we have a space. We had a retreat retreat, like a retreat on how to do retreats. And we got to show our space to other retreat leaders. Also, when we talked earlier about hosting events, a lot of people who attend events are retreat leaders. They're like, oh, man, we should come back here and do a retreat. And I'm like, great. Every time we had an event, we also met people that then later hosted their events. So I never relied on online marketing until the very end when we tried it. But yeah, the distinction is if you're a place that hosts other people's groups, that's the route that we went. Places that only do their own content, I've seen great success stories. It's just a whole different line of work. And you really have to promote, you know, each time you have a retreat, 30 people need to come. So you have to have a pretty strong promotion machine or affiliates or people who will send you customers um, so that you can do that. Because then you'll be disappointed. You'll throw your first event and three people show up and the electricity bill and everything comes in and you're like, oh, shit, I could have hosted somebody else's group and filled this space. So, hmm. yeah, it's a choice to make. Well, give me sure. give me some uh, some straightforward advice. Let's say um, I'm here. I've got this place. I've got a little bit of space to hold people. I feel like I can I can do a retreat and whether I feel like. Let's say I found somebody else to do a retreat here and I'm going to just help them host it. What's your advice to me for promoting this event? Let's say it's something in the realm of wellness, wellness experience, personal growth type thing. What are some of the first things that I should be considering when trying to get people to, to come to my event? Should I just go to the retreat guru? No, so I think now, like this year, Retreat Guru has actually gotten really good at helping send people to events, but you can't rely on on any one source. So you have to have a good core and then Retreat Guru or an Instagram ad or a Facebook ad could add a few people. But one, just to back up a step, is letting people know that your space is available for events and having a real simple package that says, hey, we charge 30 person per night for camping in the for sleeping in a tent. And we charge $20 a day per food, or maybe it's $100 for the tent and, and 30 for food. So you, you make your pricing so that a retreat leader knows, wow, for a group of 10 people here, it's going to cost me, you know, $1,000 a day for five days. Okay, that's five grand. So I need to charge those 10 people at least above $500, usually double, usually $1,000. So one is setting the basic economics that you can attract an event. So they know how much you charge them, okay? Food, accommodation, and maybe if you charge like an event fee or a space fee, some people do. Then once you have an event and it's a personal growth event and you love the teacher and she has five students who are already like down to go with her to Costa Rica and she said, Ed, like I really want to promote this event. I'll do an interview like this ahead of time or a workshop where I'll invite them on. I'll start to connect my audience to the person and vice versa. They've like, if they want me to come on something they're doing and then they could run a little bit of Facebook ads and a little bit of, you know, digital advertising to promote then that content, maybe what the retreat will be about. Like we'll do a workshop on breath work mm-hmm. and that webinar, that workshop, just like somebody has an online course after that, you can also have a retreat. Typically the, the latter that happens is um, there's like a, in all marketing that I've seen on the internet, I do people marketing. So I go and I meet people. That's how I fill an event or, or meet an event leader. 
But to use the internet, the basics that I've seen from all conscious marketing is give something really awesome for free, a workshop, a webinar, something that people, even if they don't buy anything from you, like this is awesome. Like this is your service and they're super thrilled. And if they like that, maybe they want to learn with you in a whatever, an online course or a program. And if they really liked learning with you, maybe then they're ready for a retreat. And it's like five of your top or 10 of your top students. Most teachers don't have coaching to go through that arc. So they're a great yoga teacher and they just want to do a retreat. And then they're bummed that they didn't fill it up. It's not how it works. It takes so much work Mm -hmm. to build your community. It's really a community to then offer 20 spaces for a retreat. You need a pretty large community to do that. So I really try to humble people to slow down, like take the time if that's the route you want to take as a teacher or even as a space, if you're going to start hosting your own events, start building your community, start going to other people's events, start going to other beach towns or other places, connect with people, say, hey, like I'm here, this is what I do, or this is my space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I more believe in people. I really love people, so I more believe in connecting with people to promote uh, retreat or space. Yeah. Yeah, but I I really really like what you were just saying and and it follows right in line with everything i've been learning in my own journey that the default tactic of creating a flyer and trying to blanket that flyer all over the internet has value and it and there's often a cost if you really want to reach people but this idea of providing value providing samples for free even and using that as your flyer is so much more rich it's so much more interactive and relationship building because people get a chance to understand what they might experience if they so yeah having whatever some of the modalities of the retreat are going to be doing little mini video recorded workshops of those topics and If you're going to promote anything, if you're going to put money behind anything in advertisement, get more people to see that free content to attract them to your event. And of course, having a little call to action at the end of it, rather than paying to put your two-dimensional flyer in front of them, you know, so that doesn't really give them nearly as much information to base their decision off of. That's a really good mechanism. And then you build a rich community and then you could really be at service and say, what do you guys need? Maybe they don't need your stinking retreat. They want to study with you on Zoom. So give them that, you know, like it's funny how the ego puts in these things, but it's really, you know, see what your community needs. And like you said, promote the free event, not the final product. When I worked at Selena, we looked at if a retreat is, let's say, $20,000 as like a unit economics of what somebody paid, like the end customer, then A normal company would be willing to invest 10%, 2K into that retreat. So imagine if you had one or $2,000 to promote something, how would you do it? You know, if it was going to bring you 20 as a space and where would you spend that money? It's interesting. I think it can be done in a way that's really conscious and promoting a free webinar that will get a lot of people interested and then along the way. And of course, a little sprinkle of when you release the retreat flyer, You can add a little bit of ads and let people see it. But um, those people are not the ones really who are going to convert. It just gives you like Facebook points. Yeah, man, cool retreat. (laughs) Right. 
Because this other format, you're selling the experience right off the top more than a list of features yeah. or yeah. details about the event. Yeah. And then also, by the way, there's mm -hmm. the free thing. And, and that's there's... great too. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Okay. I was just saying like the idea of doing the free, you know, demo of the modality. And I love what you said about asking like, okay, yeah, we have this event coming up love to promote it to you and like have you if you loved what we did here you know come to the event and doing some follow-up surveys is also wise yeah to find out like what did you like about that what did you not like would you like to continue doing these online instead of coming to our event you know that's that listening you're talking about that questioning observing listening and being willing to creatively respond to change yeah depending on the information that you get by the way you you uh, said something important which is the feedback component so after each event we had a what worked what could have been better and we did it if it wasn't the last night of the event it was the next morning we couldn't leave an event without it because how many times i saw we learned something and we repeated that mistake we created a system that after each event mm. we tightened our dials. We saw what could be better. And so each event we grew. So it's really rad. I think that's super important. And now with online, we have friends who are combining both. You have an online container and then a retreat at the end. So I think it's pretty cool. Awesome. Well, we're coming to the end of our time here. Uh, and you've really given us a lot of great things to think about in getting started with hosting events. So thank you so much for your time. You provide consulting and you have some videos online and you've got some new projects that are uh, up and coming here with um, Nucleo and more. So give our listeners a little rundown of what kind of services that you're providing for people in this, this genre of back to the land event holding community building experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So now, uh, having started Nucleo, uh, which is our new project in building mini retreat centers, so we're partnering with people who want to invest in retreat centers or in land uh, to do that, to build much smaller retreat centers for an extended period of time so that people coming to Costa Rica can have a bridge, can have a taste of alternative living before they jump into it. So um, we're building essentially spaces that can hold retreats and uh, individuals for longer stays, one week, three weeks, a month, not just like a two-night Airbnb stay. And we're building that with tiny houses and uh, cool common spaces. And I still really wanted to consult people and advise people because I do that my whole life. And not just like at any price point, I love to do it. So when someone has a project, even if like I can't, I'm like, Call me once a month. I'll be your advisor. If I can, I used to consult and charge a fee and help them build everything. Now I started an incubator program called Genesis to do that as a group. It's going to be up on zadel.com shortly. And it's um, also going to be up on my Instagram and on Live the Possibility. I'll give you the links after. But uh, basically, that is a way for me to consult a group of people building retreat centers and allow them to help themselves too. So we'll create a container we'll we'll learn the essentials from like permitting, financials, how to create events, fill events. But then we'll work together as a group to actually tackle uh, the practical stuff on their project um, and connect them to all the resources, builders, architects. So 
On one side, I, I still want to be of service and education, and that'll be through Genesis and free workshops that I do every month online. And on the other side, I want to keep building these spaces and partner with people who do. So in that case with Nucleo now, we're building in Nosara, in Santa Teresa, one day hopefully in the southern zone by where you are. And yeah, mm -hmm. that's been really a lot of fun, but we're taking it slow, really, really slow. Okay. So if there's anyone out there that you're calling in to be contacting you about these things, like who's the ideal person who'd be contacting you and asking you to provide what you have available right now? Who are you calling in to work with? Anyone who wants to open some form of retreat center, rental properties, space. One, I really like helping those people and eco-village in the education model module. So if you want to learn this stuff, whether for free or in a paid format, that's what I love to share. Secondly, if someone actually really is ready to go and buy land and build a, some kind of retreat center project, we've started calling in those people to help them find their land and to build the project. And we're not talking about like multiple million dollar projects. We're buying small properties. Um, most of our projects are six, 700K projects with the land included. So, you know, buying an affordable property and putting a few tiny houses and a yoga deck and a pool and kind of kitchen common area, that's what we're building for people and with people. Um, so somebody who wanted to do that and has the capital to do that, instead of them going to make a bunch of mistakes, we're partnering together with them. So that's been fun. That's been really fun. Okay, great. Well, now we know. Edward, um, I'm going to get to the rest of your day. Thanks so much for you taking your time. I really look forward to uh, meeting up again on this journey and getting to know each other better. And uh, yeah, seeing where the, uh, where the mystery takes us. Yeah, and thank you for the work you're doing, Jason. It's so needed and uh, so grateful for this conversation. Your professionalism, like you have such a dedication to this subject matter. So I think your listeners should and do appreciate that, but it's uh, really a pleasure to be on here with you. Thanks. Great. I'll get the rest of those links from you. We'll have them in the show notes for when people listen to this. And uh, yeah, we'll just keep the network building. Sweet, man. Thanks, Jason. All right, buddy. Have a great rest of your day. You too, man.